I'd like to have you turn with me to the 42nd chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 42. If you have trouble locating the book, if you uh, turn right to the middle of the Old Testament, that's the uh, Psalms, and then Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet of the southern kingdom of Judah. He prophesied during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah during the last part of the 8th century B.C. I tell you that just so you'll know that uh, Isaiah was a real live person. We uh, sometimes think these uh, stories are not really rooted in history. These characters are so far back in history, sometimes they're lost in antiquity and they don't seem like real individuals, but Isaiah was real. He lived 750 years before Christ. He was a uh, remarkable man. Uh, we often think of prophets as uh, wizened old prudes who went around stamping out fun, fun. Much like someone once said of the Puritans, they had a sneaking suspicion that somewhere someone was having a good time. Uh, that's not really true of the Puritans, if you've read anything of John Milton, and it wasn't at all true of, uh, of uh, Isaiah. He's a very lively personality, a man of tremendous courage and confidence in God. He was a court historian as well as a counselor to the kings of the uh, southern kingdom, and he had a tremendous impact politically as well as spiritually on the nation. Uh, he reminds me of something I read once about uh, William Gladstone, who was the uh, uh, minister of finance under Disraeli, the uh, prime minister of England, and they had a personal battle going through much of their uh, career. Gladstone was a Christian. And Israeli said the thing that disturbed him about Gladstone was not that he always had an ace up his sleeve, but it was his infernal insistence that the Almighty had put it there. <laughs> and I, I always think of that uh, story when I think of Isaiah because he has that kind of uh, dogged faith and courage, willingness to face down these great uh, political figures of the 8th century and call them back to obedience. Uh, much as the Apostle Paul who said, I can do all things through Christ who, uh, who strengthens me. But for myself, the thing that sets Isaiah apart from the other prophets is his compassion. He's preeminently the uh, prophet of compassion. And again, we don't think of prophets in those terms. We think of them as stern and demanding, teaching with a hickory stick in their hands. But uh, Isaiah is a prophet of, of mercy and compassion. He, perhaps more than any of the, uh, any of the other prophets, depicts uh, the Lord as a Father of mercy, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our distress. And he was ministering to people who had, who had, a, had gotten a raw deal out of life. I, uh, th just this past uh, weekend, I was in uh, California speaking at a careers conference, a bunch of young men and women at uh, Mount Hermon, and a young woman told me uh, that she had had two husbands, and both of them had walked out on her and left her with two sets of children and no support. Life had really dealt her a, a bad deal. There are a lot of people like that. The world's full of people that got a raw deal out of life. And uh, if that's the situation you find yourself in, then 
Isaiah is your prophet. He's a prophet of comfort, preeminently. The, uh, the book divides itself into three parts, like so many things. Um, the first section, from chapters 1 through 35, is set against the backdrop of the Assyrian period, that is, the, the period when the Assyrian Empire was in ascendancy. Uh, Isaiah is speaking to his contemporaries of the 8th century. Assyria was encroaching from the north. They had uh, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and little Judah lay in their path, and they were in danger of being overrun if they didn't uh, straighten up. And it was Isaiah's personal ministry to call them back to, uh, to repentance. Uh, it's a message of judgment, but it's interspersed with promises of Israel's glorious future if they respond in, in obedience. That's the first 35 chapters. The second section is chapters 36 through 39, and it's a sort of uh, historical interlude. I mentioned that Isaiah was the court historian, and here he writes some history for us. Initially, a report of the invasion, uh, the siege, and uh, the threat of danger to Jerusalem on the part of Sennacherib and, and the Assyrian armies. But the real purpose of those chapters is to report on Hezekiah's col colossal blunder. Uh, Hezekiah was sick. He became, he was actually terminally ill. And uh, he begged for additional years. And so God prolonged his life. And during that period of time, he gave away the secrets of Israel's treasure trove. Uh, historians tell us that, that uh, underneath the temple and on the temple and around the temple, there were there was a vast amount of uh, gold and other treasures, which in today's money would be worth about a billion dollars or more. And it was that that eventually brought the Babylonian, uh, Babylonian Empire to uh, uh, besiege and conquer the city of Jerusalem and send it to ex exile her people. So this uh, historical section here from 35 through 39 is sort of a bridge from the Assyrian period into the Babylonian period because from chapter 40 on, Isaiah's preoccupation is with the Babylonian captivity and the return of the exiles from Babylon. Here he is from in the 8th century B.C. talking about events that took place in the 6th century B.C., about 150 years later, and he speaks with precision and perceptiveness about their situation 150 years in the future. That's why some of the more radical critics of the Old Testament want to put a later date on Isaiah because they can't handle the fact that uh, Isaiah is predicting with, uh, with real precision, events that won't occur for 150 years. But what he's doing is preparing a book for the returning exiles. When these repatriated Jews came back to Judea, there was a book waiting for them, Isaiah 40 through 66, which was a book of comfort. That's the way Isaiah 40 begins. That chapter is the introduction to uh, this final section of Isaiah. Comfort, O oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem, literally speak to her heart, and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. So it's a word of comfort. Now in these uh, final 27 chapters, you see a individual emerging, a sort of shadowy, enigmatic figure, difficult to identify. Sometimes he's identified with the nation as a whole. 
Sometimes he's identified with the people that, is, that uh, Isaiah describes as the remnant, the hard core of faith, the, the, those who had vital faith in contrast to those who were only nominally believers. But uh, more often than not, this individual is identified as a solitary uh, person, one individual who's called the servant of the Lord. And in the New Testament, these passages are always explained in terms of our Lord's person and ministry. He is the servant of, of the Lord. So what you have in the so-called servant songs is the Old Testament foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture in advance of what he's like. Now there are five of these servant songs and we're going to look at them over the next uh, five Sundays. There's one in chapter 42, one in 49, one in 50, and then perhaps the best known in chapter 53, and then finally in 61. Now let's read the first four verses of chapter 42. <clears throat> Behold my servant whom I uphold. All of the ancient uh, translations, the first Aramaic translations of the Old Testament insert between servant and whom the word Messiah. So the Jews of Jesus' day clearly uh, believed that this, this uh, servant song is fulfilled in the coming of Messiah, our Lord Jesus. Behold my servant, the Messiah, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands or the Gentiles will wait expectantly for his law. Now the context of chapter 42 is a great court scene in chapter 41. The Lord calls uh, to uh, the dock, to the bar, all of the nations of the world. The Gentile nations were uh, in the driver's seat. In that time in history, Israel was in decline. The uh, great nation off to the east was Babylon, and Persia was emerging, and off to the west, Greece was at her zenith. These are the uh, people from whom most of, we've gained most of our Western wisdom. The uh, great thinkers and philosophy, philosophers and social scientists and political scientists and educators and strategists all uh, were making their influence known during this time, and it's these people that the Lord calls in front of the bench. And uh, he asks the key question, who will bring forth justice on the earth? Now, the biblical concept of justice is broader than ours. We tend to think in terms of law and order, but in the Old Testament, justice really means to set things right, to make things as they ought to be. All of us have some idea of how things ought to be, and justice means to bring things into a line, into alignment with that idea of what's right, what's proper. We all feel we ought to get what's coming to us and expect to, unless it's sent through the mails, as somebody said. And... Uh, we just know that it's right that we should have certain things. Our, the preamble to our Constitution starts uh, with the words that we all had to memorize in school. We have certain in, inalienable rights, 
and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There are certain non-transferable rights that we all have. We, we sense that's right and proper, that we should be free to pursue life and, and be whole people, and things are always coming along to break up our lives and destroy our peace and harmony and ruin our marriages. And we ask the same question. Who can set things right? Who can bring justice to the world? Well, the uh, conclusion that uh, the judge comes to in verse 28 of chapter 41 is that there's, there's simply no one. But when I look, there is no one, and there is no counselor among them. And uh, literally, I ask them, and they return a word. That is, I ask them for counsel, and they return a word, but he says their works are worthless. They're empty. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. They don't have anything to say. They can't offer any counsel. They don't know any way to heal our marriages and, and mend our, our broken lives. But in contrast, he says in chapter 42, Behold my servant. You see the contrast between 41.29 and 42.1? Behold, all of them are false. But uh, behold my servant, the Lord Jesus. In other words, um, the secular world doesn't really have an awful lot to offer. We need to uh, listen to them. There's nothing wrong with listening to what they have to say, reading what they write, but everything needs to be questioned and everything needs to be corrected by what our Lord Jesus said. He's the standard by which we evaluate everything. He's the one who can set things right. He knows how to heal our hearts and our marriages and our lives. And sometimes we don't really appreciate what we have. We look for the latest book from some other source who will help us, and we forget that we really have the one who has all the answers to life. Uh, I was listening to a tape by Jay Adams this past week, and he, was, he told a story about a theatrical agent who had gone through an entire day uh, seeing nothing but bad acts, and uh, he was really discouraged. And finally this fellow came in, with a frog who could play the piano. And he brings his little satchel in and he gets this little tiny grand piano out and he sets it on the agent's desk and he gets that little stool and he finally gets this green frog and he puts him on the stool and the frog runs a scale or two and then he begins to play flawlessly Rachmaninoff's Prelude in C-sharp minor. <laughs> and the agent is just uh, ecstatic. And then the fellow reaches in his bag and he pulls out a little goldfish and he puts it on the piano and, and the goldfish runs a couple of scales and then he begins to sing in this beautiful Irish tenor voice, Mother McCree. And uh, the agent just goes into orbit. You know, he says, we're going to make millions out of this deal. And the guy all of us just abruptly packs everything up, puts the frog back in his bag and he walks out. The agent runs after him. He says, wait, wait, where are you going? He says, I just can't do it. I can't go through with it. The whole thing is a fraud. It's a phony deal. The agent says, no, it's great. It's a terrific act. What's wrong with it? And the guy says, no, it's a fraud. The goldfish can't sing. The frog's a ventriloquist. <laughs> Well, that story is sometimes we don't know what we have. <laughs> we have the Lord Jesus. 
as uh, Carolyn is fond of saying, men and women will always disappoint you. Try Jesus. He's the one that we can count on. So uh, let's do that this morning. Let's follow directions and behold the servant. It says a number of things about him. First of all, it simply says that he's a servant, which was the keynote of his life. Wherever he went, he served. Uh, Paul in Philippians 2 describes his uh, condescension. He, he was in the form of God. The word means to be inherently God. He was God. That's all there is to it. And he set aside the independent use of his godhood, his deity, and he became a man. And Paul says he went even further. He became a servant. He says of himself, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Isn't it odd to contrast his lofty claims and the lowly way he went about serving? Here he is, God himself, uh, receiving to himself the worship of God and, and attributing to himself the attributes of God. He was never, uh, never embarrassed by what he was. He could unabashedly claim to be God, but yet in his manner he was always lowly, serving caring for others, interested in them. He acted as you would expect God to act if he were on the earth. And that's the, uh, that's the pattern he set for us. We are to be servants as well. He set us an example, Peter says, that we should follow his steps. And that's what makes life meaningful. That's an important lesson to learn. That's one we all have to learn because we don't like to serve. We like to be served. But we don't understand in the first place, we'll never, our desire for, uh, our self-centered desire to be served is, is bottomless. There's no end to that quest. The more we get, the more we want. And we just become miserable and unhappy. But the way to be fulfilled and happy is to serve, to look for someone else who has a need. I spent a lot of my time at this career conference telling those people down there to quit thinking about themselves. My goodness, they're all concerned about their relationships and how much they hurt and does so-and-so like me and are we made for each other and all this other stuff. And my goodness, forget yourself. Stop thinking about yourself. Start giving yourself away to others. Lose yourself and you'll find yourself. That's what Jesus said. Some of us come here on Sunday morning and and inadvertently we're overlooked, you know, somebody doesn't notice us and they don't see that we're hurting and it's easier for us to go home and feel sorry for ourselves all week. My goodness, let's don't do that. Uh, go look at your face in the washroom and then come back and look for somebody who looks more miserable than you do. <laughs> and go serve them, befriend them, love them. That's how we find ourselves. Some of you are preoccupied with finding a mate, and some of you wish you didn't have one. <laughs> You'd change with anybody. Just don't hang up on those things. Just be a servant. That's what the Lord was. Now, there are a number of things said about the, the resources that he had, the things that enabled him to serve. He's described as the servant whom the Father upholds. The word actually means uh, to take uh, someone in your grasp. The point is not that our Lord held on to the Father, but that the Father held on to him. It's the same word that's translated uh, back in chapter 41, 
Be strong. Verse 6, each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. Hold fast. Hang in there. That's the sort of bad counsel we give to each other when we're under pressure. Just be tough. Hold on. Seen that uh, poster with a cat hanging on? Hang in there, baby. Uh, this is in light of an imminent invasion from the east on, by Cyrus and the Persian army. And people were saying to each other, Be strong. Be tough. Hang in there. That's bad advice. Bad counsel. Doesn't work. I'm always amused by Lucy's counsel to Charlie Brown. <laughs> Saw a great segment the other day. Lucy, uh, Charlie Brown is standing in front of Lucy's little counseling bench and counseling booth, and he says, Lucy, I've tried. I've tried, and I've tried. Tell me, I've tried. Lucy says, nice try, Charlie Brown. It'll be five cents, please. <laughs> That's the sort of thing we, that's the way we encourage each other. It just doesn't work. The thing that makes the Christian life work is not that I hang on to God, but that he hangs on to me. That's what made our Lord a servant. He was sustained by the Father's strength, upheld by his power. Now, we're not used to thinking of the Lord that way. We tend to think of him as self-sufficient because, after all, he was God. But the New Testament tells us clearly that in the days of his humanity, he set aside that independent use of his deity, and he acted just as we act. He didn't have an edge on us just because he was God. He set all that aside. And the power that he demonstrated, the wisdom that uh, we see in his teaching, his compassion for people, his capacity to go on serving despite the response of people, all of that came from the Father. It didn't come from within him. As Jesus put it, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he that eats me will live because of me. He lived off of the Father, and we live off of him. The same relationship that he had to the Father, we have to him. The second thing that's said of him is that he um, was the chosen one in whom the Father delighted. That's really an echo or... Jesus, or the Father's words to Jesus at his baptism are an echo of these words. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He always operated under that, uh, under that sense of the Father's approval. He was always aware that the Father liked him. He was special to the Father. He didn't have to prove himself. The uh, significant thing to me about those words from heaven at his baptism is that they were uttered before he ever did anything. He had done no miracles. He had preached no sermons. He was just a faithful, obedient son. And the Father approved of him. And he approves of you, too. That's, that's how we can withstand rejection and pe people who dislike what we're doing, what we're saying, because we know we're accepted and approved by the Father. So he not only was upheld by the Father's power, he experienced the approval, his approval and his delight and then furthermore, and we're told, he has the Spirit upon him. He's indwelt by the Spirit of God. The uh, word for spirit in the Old Testament is the same word that's translated wind. And uh, it always strikes me as a good illustration of the way the Spirit of God works. He works like the wind, quietly, imperceptibly, and yet powerfully. And wherever the Lord Jesus went, the wind of God blew. People's lives were affected. They couldn't forget him. 
and millions today owe their life to him. And uh, we're told in this passage, it's because the Spirit of God was upon him, as he is upon us. That's the secret to our Lord's extraordinary life. He was upheld by the Father's power. He was sustained by the Father's approval, and he was indwelt by the Father's Spirit. And therefore, as, as Isaiah tells us, he could bring forth justice. He could set things right. And then verses 2 and 3 tell us something of his manner. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. He wasn't loud and obtrusive. He didn't force himself on people. He didn't demand that everybody notice him. He didn't try to be the center of, of everything. He just quietly went about serving. And furthermore, we're told a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Those are all symbols for the weak and ineffectual. A bruised reed that's, uh, that has no strength in itself and a flax that's uh, dimly burning. You know, they used flax as wicks in their, in their lamps. And the lady of the house would go around in the evening and she would pinch out the wick to extinguish it at night. But often the wicks would continue to smolder. And that's the figure that he is evoking here. A fragile, broken reed with no strength of its own and a dimly burning piece of flax. And we're told he won't extinguish a dimly burning flax. He fans it into flame. He won't crush a bent reed. He strengthens it. And that's us. That's what we, that's what we are. Why kid ourselves that we, that we have strength? We're just like that. And that's the sort of people that our Lord delighted to be around. Those are the ones he befriended because, as he said, I came not to minister to those that are well, but to the sick. And furthermore, as Isaiah puts it, he'll not be disheartened or crushed as he goes about his ministry. The verb that's translated disheartened here is the root of the adjective that's translated dimly burning in verse 3. And the verb translated crushed in verse 4 is the root of the adjective bruised in verse 3. In other words, though he's around crushed and broken people, he himself is never crushed and broken. Doesn't pick up their affliction. Doesn't get discouraged. Doesn't say, oh no, Roper, are you back again? <laughs> With the same old thing. He doesn't resent it when we keep coming back. Doesn't get frustrated by our weakness. Doesn't get turned off by our inability. I was working with Josh on his math the other day. Math is his nemesis. And it's mine, too, now. And uh, I was trying to teach him how to factor. And I uh, would go over it and over it and over it, and he couldn't get it. And I'd draw him pictures, and, and we just went over it and over it. And I began to get frustrated and annoyed with him. And finally, he put me in my place. He said, Dad, don't get mad at me. I'm trying. I just can't get it. And I thought of this passage. The Lord doesn't get annoyed when we don't get it right. He doesn't get frustrated when we struggle and when we fail. That's the kind of people that he wants to help. He wants to fan us into flame and give us the strength that we need. And this passage tells us that he won't stop until he has brought about justice in the world and the Gentiles will seek him out. He doesn't stop until he's done. As Paul puts it, he who has begun a good work in you, well, he won't stop until he's perfected it.
You know, that's the kind of Lord we have. Do you think of him as harsh and stern and demanding? It's not the way he is. He wants to give you help. But you have to want that help. You have to be willing to let him help you. Let's pray. Perhaps you've thought of yourself or have wanted to think of yourself as self-sufficient, but you've, you know down inside that you simply do not have what it takes to meet the demands that are placed upon you. Perhaps you've never realized that the Lord wants to be your Lord and provide the strength that you need. Well, he does. He wants, to be, he wants to serve you in this way. Would you pray along with me? Lord Jesus, be my help. I can't make it alone. I know how much I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Come into my life. Be my life. Provide what I need to be the kind of person that I long to be. Thank you for coming into my life. And Lord Jesus, we give you thank for being, thanks for being our, our helper. And we know that we, that we can't make it on our own. Thank you that you're never frustrated with us. You're always available, always willing. Teach us to remember that, to see you as, as a loving, tender, serving Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.